Welcome to Term Talk. I'm Jim Chance, Senior Judicial Education Attorney at the Federal Judicial Center in Washington, and I'm here with Paul Clement, the former Solicitor General of the United States under President George W. Bush. Paul is also a distinguished lecturer at Georgetown Law and senior fellow at their Supreme Court Institute. Welcome, Paul. It's great to be with you, Jim. This is the second round of cases challenging COVID restrictions and vaccination requirements, the first having been last term. But Paul, can you please distinguish this year's challenges from last year's for those who are listening? Sure, I'd be happy to. So this year's cases are really challenges to agency authority. They're specifically challenges to rules promulgated by two federal agencies. And so most of the questions are questions about statutory authority and the Administrative Procedures Act. Last term, of course, by contrast, the focus was on religious exemptions from vaccine requirements and free exercise of religion issues, not the APA. The one other thing that the cases both have in common, I suppose, is that they, they came up as emergency applications to the court's docket. But this term, um, instead of just deciding the cases entirely on the papers and without oral argument, the court made a relatively unusual decision to consider these emergency applications after oral argument before the court. And I think that may be seen as a response to some of the criticisms of the emergency docket or the so-called shadow docket, where the court's deciding all of these important cases uh, without oral argument. Both of these decisions turned in part on whether the agency even had the authority to promulgate the emergency rules without the usual notice and public comment. In Biden versus Missouri, uh, the HHS secretary required facilities receiving federal funds to ensure that their workers were vaccinated and provided exemptions for certain workers, for example, those who worked solely from home and for religious and medical reasons. That's exactly right. And the majority of the court really focused on the fact that these regulations were supported by statutory authority that HHS was given to ensure that the various recipients of federal funds, whether they be hospitals or long-term care facilities, are able to operate in a way that's safe and effective for their patients. That's where the statutory authority came from. The court focused on the fact that this would be limited to the healthcare industry and would affect about 10 million workers. And then lastly, the court looked at the way these rules were promulgated, but felt like given this healthcare context, that it was appropriate for the court, uh, for the agency rather to bypass notice and comment rulemaking. All right, Justice Thomas filed a dissent uh, joined by Justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Barrett that, that would treat the cases the same. It seemed that they believed that the requirements to stay the injunction were not met, that the evidence indicated that the government was not likely to succeed on the merits, and that the agency's rulemaking authority was limited to promulgating administrative rules and found that there was no nexus between the rule and the authority Congress had actually provided to them. And finally, uh, despite the noted exceptions, the dissenters said this was a mandate. That's exactly right. And the dissenters, in particularly Justice Thomas and his dissent, really focused on the fact that the statutory authority that the majority of the court relied on and that HHS relied on in the oral argument and the reply brief was really just kind of cobbled together from a variety of statutory provisions. There was no one provision that said that HHS has the authority 
to make all healthcare facilities receiving federal funds um, safe and effective. And instead, it was kind of agency by agency. The text of the provisions uh, differed in material respects. And the Justice Thomas really focused on the fact that there wasn't the kind of comprehensive authority needed to promulgate these regulations. There was also a separate dissent by Justice Alito um, that, that was joined by the other dissenters as well. And that focused a little bit more on the procedural posture of the case, and in particular on the issue of bypassing notice and comment rulemaking. And he suggested that the way that the HHS proceeded here, waiting several months before putting the, the provisions into effect, and then delaying the effective date by a few days, sort of suggested there wasn't the kind of emergency that allows an agency to bypass notice and comment rulemaking. All right, let's take a look at National Federation of Independent Business versus OSHA. Sure. So turning to that case, obviously the, the court came out differently in the context of that case. I think just to set the stage for it, the big difference there is that the regulation affected a much broader range of workers really across all industries. I think the estimates are for uh, about 84 million employees affected for every employer in the country with more than 100 employees. So a much more uh, kind of broad-based approach based on OSHA's authority to regulate worker safety. And of course, as in the HHS context, it's done uh, in an expedited way and they don't go through notice. The agency does not go through notice and comment rulemaking. Well, the majority in this case believe the rule preempted state authority in violation of separation of powers doctrine, going all the way back to McCullough versus Maryland for this. Uh, they applied the major questions doctrine they found that Congress had not clearly granted authority to mandate vaccinations or, or weekly testing and masks. No, that's exactly right, Jim. And that was really the big difference with the dissenters. Because as you note, in the context of the majority opinion, they really thought that OSHA's authority doesn't really extend to harms that aren't limited to the workplace. And the dissenters took real issue with that and suggested that OSHA routinely regulates things like uh, the agency regulates things like safe drinking water or imposes kind of fire restrictions to avoid uh, risks of kind of fire. And those are risks that are equally present um, in other settings and in the home. And so I think the, the dissenters really felt like the majority was limiting the agency's authority in a way that was inappropriate. So Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan disagreed with the majority's decision to reinstate the stay. They found that the government was likely to prevail on the merits. Uh, they said the government must balance harms and the public interest, and that the public interest, i.e. the health of workers, supported a grant of the stay. And they cited South Bay United Pentecostal Church from last term to say that the court lacks the background, the competence, the expertise to assess workplace safety and health issues. So where does this leave us uh, in the context of uh, last term's uh, COVID restriction rulings? What can we garner from, uh, from these other than what we've already covered? So Jim, there's kind of three things that I think are interesting potential takeaways. I think we have to look at these opinions with a little bit of a grain of salt and remember that they were put together in very short order. They weren't intended to be sort of full merits opinions. But I still think the three things that emerged to me are, first, this is another set of decisions that really kind of underscores this idea that there is a major questions doctrine that the court looks at in these administrative agency cases. 
And I think one way to reconcile the results in these two cases is the court is asking, is this the kind of question that Congress would just let an agency solve on its own motion? Or is this the kind of federal government policy that requires Congress itself to uh, enact a new statute? And I think in the context of a regulation targeted at the healthcare industry, which is kind of the focus of the Health and Human Services Agency, the majority of the court was comfortable that that was something Congress had delegated to the agency. But when it comes to imposing a mandate on virtually every employer in the country and 84 million employees, the court had a different reaction. The second kind of takeaway for me is that I do think underlying at least the uh, NFIB decision involving OSHA, uh, a majority of the court really thought that at some level, the states were the primary parties that should take care of these kind of health and safety issues created by the pandemic and that the federal government was more, in its role, was more complementary and shouldn't be the one imposing these kind of direct mandates. The third takeaway has less to do with the doctrine, just with the way the court handled these cases. It will be interesting to see whether the court uses this kind of hybrid approach with an emergency application but mm -hmm. oral argument um, in other cases going forward. On the one hand, it does respond to some of the criticism about the emergency docket and the lack of oral argument. But on the other hand, it's you know, very possible that by taking essentially a week out of the court's schedule to rush out these opinions, uh, it really put the court's overall schedule kind of in a little bit of uh, danger and put them kind of behind the chains in terms of addressing the merits cases. So it'll be interesting to see whether we, whether we ever have another one of these hybrid cases going forward. Paul, listen, thanks so much for joining us. As always, your insights are helpful. We certainly appreciate your sharing them with us. No, my pleasure. Great to be with you. This podcast was paid for at U.S. taxpayer expense.